Though the global pandemic may be slowing things down, Spring Branch is taking tangible steps forward to keep our economy strong, like supporting our local businesses, linking them to free online business courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, real estate reporter with the Houston Chronicle, and I'm here today with Rebecca Schutz. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Nancy. Today on the show, we are happy to welcome back Scott Davis. Scott has been a commercial real estate broker. He's worked in the real estate department for a large grocery chain, and he most recently led the Houston office of Myers Research. Now, he's the president of a company called Location Strategy, a consulting firm that specializes in residential and commercial development. Scott, it's great to have you back on Looped In. It's been a while. It has been a while, Nancy. It's great to see you and uh, Rebecca, you as well. So, Scott, you were on one of our early episodes of Looped In where we talked about the history of Houston's development and some of its most prominent neighborhoods. Yeah, when I moved here, I was like, oh, let me find some good history books on Houston. And I haven't found anything that like quite is what I imagined yet. Do you have any favorite histories of Houston? Well, I can I can tell you how to learn a bit about Houston history, and that is to listen to Scott Davis on Looped In episode. <laughs> I don't remember what number, but it's called Houston History 101, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are... Uh, a couple places that you can go. Uh, one is uh, a book called Houston Freeways by Eric Slotboom. Uh, it's out of print, but you could probably find uh, a copy like on Amazon or something. Um, it goes through the construction and development of all the freeways. And he's got a ton of maps and photographs uh, that goes back to the 40s. Um, you know, a couple of things out of there. Gulf Freeway was named by uh, a, a random drawing. It was like an eight-year-old girl that thought of the name Gulf Freeway. What? Uh, <laughs> uh, another is that uh, the Grand Parkway has been on uh, the major thoroughfare plan since 1961. I mean, can you imagine sitting here 50 years ago uh, when, you know, there wasn't even a loop yet and thinking about, you know, we need to build this highway that's, 25 miles outside the city limits. And, and those are all maps that are in that, that book. So it's a, a, a great one. Beyond that, it's just I mean, reading lots of articles, uh, having been in the uh, real estate uh, industry for so long. Uh, people, people tell stories. One of the things that uh, when I was a real estate broker, people from other parts of the country would tell me that was so different about Houston real estate market is that we had lots of what they called characters uh, who would tell lots of stories. And so kind of starting my career at the tail end of those guys from the 60s and 70s, I heard lots and lots and lots of stories. And uh, sometimes you just be quiet and listen. And, uh, you know, you'll find out you'll learn a lot. Mm. Yeah. Another, another good resource for Houston history as it relates to buildings and architecture is the architectural guide Stephen Fox's, or he's updated it a couple times, but it's at my desk. <laughs> right. And, is that the red um, spiral bound one from the it, AIA? It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, a great yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Another source for looking a little further back in history is uh, at, at, during the Great Depression, 
the uh, the WPA hired writers to do travel guides for cities all over the country. So there's a, a Houston guide that was written in about 1936. Uh, there's you know one for Dallas and, and I think San Antonio uh, as just part of an employment project. And so you know obviously you wouldn't do it to travel today, but if you were to you mm-hmm. know look back at that period in time, especially a little further back in, in history of the city, it's a, a great resource. Oh, that's super interesting. Cool. All right. Well, that was a that was a a pretty valuable tangent, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Scott, I know that you've looked at previous pandemics and what the implications were, how we live and work. Let's talk about a few of those. And and now that so many people are working from home, like my question is, when are builders going to start designing homes for work from live work situations where, where sure. they work from home. I think the the pandemic is something that's amplifying an existing trend. Uh, I think that you could go and find a number of live work ready type space type uh, products, both in town and in the suburbs and among our, our, our new home builders. Um, although kind of having all of the people in your family work from home at the same time is new. Uh, having to account for that space uh, where somebody works at home, uh, I think our, our, our builders have already been doing that. I, I think one of the things that will change uh, in some of the designs, and I'm sure that they're working on them now, are um, the, the flexible or multi-use spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some of the houses, particularly the smaller and newer houses, you may see something that would once have been a dining room now is a multi-purpose space or maybe dining and an office type space. Uh, I think we will see those move back towards more exclusive space, probably more exclusive office use space than, than dining space. You know, one of the challenges, Nancy and Rebecca, is that you know, within that envelope, you've only got so much space and you've got to keep moving the lines around. Uh, but, but I think that is one thing that we will see. Uh, I, I think we will see faster internet speeds and more locations uh, because that, that seems to have been uh, a weakness for some areas is not having that particular capacity. So kind of what's the first most obvious change? I mean, that's it, uh, to have that, that dedicated working space so that you can have multiple people uh, working there, there from home. You know, we certainly do see them shift pretty quickly. If you looked at, at uh, houses 10 years ago, uh, you would probably see 80% of them, floor plans, would have a master bedroom upstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, they're probably 80% have a master bedroom downstairs, and probably 50% of those have two masters on uh, the first floor to accommodate you know, an aging population. And within the scope of time, that's not very long uh, to see that kind of change. So I, I, I would tell you they're working on it. A lot of the products are there. Uh, we've seen uh, in town some builders have a product where there's an office space with a separate entrance uh, with a package drop location, you know, in a typical three-story townhome. Those are there now. And, and, and some of that product, I think, would be very workable uh, for people trying to navigate this situation. Yeah. I, I just remember back when I, I lived in an apartment, I lived in a ton of them, a series of them, and uh, the, the the last ones I lived in were probably the nicest and they, they all had those little nooks for, 
an office space, you know, where you could put your computer and sit and work, but they always ended up just as a place to stack papers and stuff that you need to put away later. Right. I can see though now how there might be some consideration around bringing those back because they, you know, I I think that developers recognized that they weren't really used as they were intended and they fell out of favor a little bit. So I I could see an argument for for bringing this back for sure and maybe in in a better way. And apartments, yeah, you may see that for sure, right? It's been a while since the apartment floor plans, but when you look at at new homes, many times uh, they'll have some kind of finished carpentry desk space for the kids built out already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a a lot of plans do at least incorporate that as an option if it's uh, not not, uh, a standard item. Uh, And so I, I think... You know, the great thing about builders is that you know, they have a construction team right there on site and and can make those those kinds of changes to a plan pretty quickly. I was talking to one real estate agent who um, I think probably speaking to his own needs, he was like, maybe you'll start seeing phone booths, <laughs> you know, like how a lot of offices have right. those small rooms where you can take a call where you can set up your laptop if you really need to get away. And they're like sound insulated. He's like, maybe you'll start seeing those in homes. And I was like, yeah, maybe. You know, a little phone booth wouldn't take much room. But if you had, you know, if dinner was being cooked and the kids are at home, you know, I guess it just depends on how long this need persists. Right. I mean, that's that's it exactly, right? Like if if there's a vaccine at the, in, in the fall or early winter, uh, then it becomes different than if, you know, there's not ever a vaccine or, uh, you know, whatever uh, that yeah. length of, of time is. So, but I think already uh, we're seeing some of those changes. We saw sales drop off in uh, March and April and seem to be coming back in May. Uh, and so I think people are finding uh, the products that accommodate, you know, their current needs out there in the market. Mm-hmm. And since you know a lot about history, do you have any historical parallels I know that was sure. very popular. So, um, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I look at, at history, Rebecca, is is people think, oh, this pandemic's unprecedented. Well, I mean, it's really not. Like one of this scale, yes, but uh, I mean, the U.S. has had a uh, we've had about a thirty year reprieve from these things. But before that, we had a pandemic about every fifteen or twenty years, or at least an oh, epidemic. Fifteen so, to twenty years. Yeah. So uh, sixty eight, we had the flu. Fifty seven, we had the flu. Uh, we had malaria in the 40s. Um, we had cholera and yellow fever, uh, a bunch. So uh, back in the 1870s, there was a cholera outbreak uh, in New York City. And uh, I don't know much about cholera, but uh, cholera comes from contaminated water that's contaminated with sewage. Uh, and that's how the, the, the bacteria is spread. So... Um, one of the major efforts to fight cholera was sanitation. So if you walked into a bathroom in the 1870s, uh, it would look like the same, you know, Victorian hard furniture with a cloth feet mm-hmm. as in every other room. And the toilet would be inside a cabinet, the sink would be inside a cabinet. It was all wood. And it, it would have been virtually indistinguishable from any other room in the house. After this cholera outbreak in the 19, the 1870s, rather, the bathroom was radically made over. Uh, the wood was gone. Uh, in came the white porcelain tile, white porcelain sinks, 
that were exposed, uh, like a clawfoot type tub. Uh, and the reason for those was so that they would be easier to clean and, and keep clean. So you know, think about when you walk into your bathroom and you see, you know, white tile backsplash surrounding a porcelain sink. The reason that you have that is a cholera epidemic uh, in New York in the 1970s. Hmm. And uh, there's there's two approaches to mitigation effort. One is to actually clean uh, the amount that needs to be clean. The other is to, you know, help create the impression for users, customers, whatever of the space, uh, that it is clean. And so uh, the porcelain bathroom, not only did it allow things to be cleaned, it was also obvious to people that use that space that it was clean uh, in a way that, say, you know, a stained oak cabinet, how do you know if that's clean or dirty? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't really. Uh, but if it's white porcelain, you do. And so that's why you see that in bathrooms, you know, everywhere in the United States today uh, is as a result of the effort to, to fight those cholera epidemics in the 1870s. That's really interesting. Or our sanitation is also like an increased, uh, there's an increased emphasis on it now. Sure. Well, I mean, sanitation is the, the enemy of, of, of city throughout history, really. Yeah. Uh, when you look at, at what's killed more people than anything, it is uh, pestilence uh, and plagues. And, and sanitation is really the way you fight that. You know, the Black Death that's spread by fleas that are on rats. Cholera is spread by intermingling wastewater with regular water. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Yellow fever is spread through mosquitoes, uh, which uh, are hashed inside standing water. So uh, all of these things, there's a sanitation component, and it really is, uh, you know, probably a respiratory virus may be a little bit different because of the way that it spreads. But for most of the diseases which inflict humanity, uh, sanitation is the primary weapon. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what some of the long-term implications could be. Yeah. For like HVACs and stuff. Yeah. I mean, air conditioning systems, some of those modern mechanical systems and buildings. Some of the interesting things I've seen uh, are some research, I think it was out of South Korea, of, of spreads of infection, uh, where they looked at where people were sitting in a restaurant relative to the airflow. And, and at least in this one particular case, there was a pretty clear pattern uh, of who got infected based on where that airflow goes. So uh, is that something as you're looking at, you know, do you set up your restaurant so that no one is seated in direct draft of the vent? Or do you put in some kind of diffuser uh, which doesn't spray directly, which you know, supposedly may uh, break up some of the virus and at the very least, you know, if you're sitting downstream of that air conditioner vent, you, know, you may get a higher viral load if the virus is there than if it's diffused. And so I think kind of the mid to longer term research that we'll see is on, on that kind of seating placement, what kind of distancing is actually required, uh, and how the airflow will be configured, how often the air is exchanged, uh, I think are probably all issues that people will look at. So there will probably will be, uh, you know, you think about social distancing we see today where you're limited on capacity or tables are are spaced out. Those are all pretty obvious measures that you see, or, or even in the case of the, the porcelain bathroom, that's an obvious measure. 
I would suspect a lot of the measures that we'll see uh, dealing with the respiratory virus will probably be non-obvious ones that, that change the way uh, you know that airflow is handled. Or uh, and I think that's probably the primary area that people will look at is how long will it stay viable in the air, and how often do you exchange the air to maybe try and pull that virus out. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Scott, so much for being here. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Rebecca, thank you as well. And listeners, thanks for listening. Looped In is hosted by me, Nancy Sarnoff, and Rebecca Schutz. As always, if you have an idea for a show or just want to say hello, you can reach out to us. We are on Facebook or Twitter. I am at NSarnoff and Rebecca is at R.A. Schutz. Please subscribe to Looped In if you don't already. And tell a friend. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or you can go to HoustonChronicle.com slash podcasts. Thanks to Scott Kingsley and Afshar Karat. Also, thanks to all the kimonos for our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.